here with you this morning. It's great to be together to worship our God in song. And as we go through this study, I hope and pray that it's beneficial to you and that it's helpful to you in your walk with Christ as much as it's been helpful to me personally. I want to thank Trevor for uh, not forcing me to change topics. We talked about that a little bit last week after his lesson. Uh, But our topic this morning will be from the question that the the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples when they asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, last week, if you weren't here, Trevor talked about the modern-day Pharisee and their, their attitudes, the way that they live their lives, and, and all the issues with those things. And one of his subtopics during uh, that lesson was the fact of, of the Pharisees' attitude about themselves, how they felt about themselves, and how they felt about other people around them. They had a lot of self-righteousness within them. And there's no better source to ask a question like this than to ask Jesus. You think about the powerful, uh, the, the source of Google that we have today. If you, if you ask someone, what's the, what's the most powerful source you can ask a question to today? They would for sure say Google more than likely. Because every time you, you look up something and you scroll and you see the results, there's always, I don't know if it's a stat where it says, you know, in one second there were 295 trillion results or something like that. Just an insane amount of results that you can find on just the internet of a simple question you might ask this Google. But there's no greater source to ask a question from than the source of Jesus. Jesus created all things, and being the creator of the universe, Jesus had all the proper answers to give people when they asked questions of him. And so, in order to better understand this question and to understand Jesus' response, it's important to understand who all is involved in this situation. So this morning we'll read from Mark, Matthew rather, chapter 9 and verse 9 through 13. It reads, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So who all is involved in this situation? Well, certainly Jesus is involved. The Pharisees are involved, some of the Jewish leaders. But also this man named Matthew. Matthew is a very interesting person in Scripture. We don't know a lot of background information about Matthew. We don't get a glimpse into his personality like we do some of the other apostles like Peter. And we don't know just a whole lot about Matthew after Jesus died and and was resurrected and ascended back to heaven. But there are some things about Matthew I think we can take away uh, from this event that caused great change in his life, and I, I think that there's some things that we can take away from Jesus himself, certainly in his conduct and his response to the Pharisees, and there's certainly lessons that we can learn from the Pharisees as well. In this event of Jesus calling this tax collector named Matthew, one of the important things to understand also during this time is how the tax collector was viewed, how people treated them, how they treated others. You know, tax collecting in the time of Jesus was much different than it is today. Tax collecting in itself is not a a sinful occupation. It's nothing evil. The government 
The, the powers of this world have been doing it for thousands of years. It's nothing new, nothing different. And in fact, Jesus uh, really put to silence uh, any controversy by simply saying, render to Caesars what is Caesars. And so we have pretty clear direction. But what tax collecting became in the time of Jesus was a very corrupt position, position of power and greed. And certainly we might believe that we live in a very greedy country, and maybe a lot of individuals are greedy, but I would say that our government is quite gracious to us in the means of collecting taxes and what they expect from us compared to a lot of other governments throughout our history. Now, the Jews hated tax collectors not just because they worked for the Roman government, but that they were Jews themselves. The Romans would hire out a lot of Jews, I would assume, in most towns or regions and make them do this work. Maybe they thought they had better things to do than to collect taxes from the people that they were ruling over. And what would happen is these people would collect taxes by any means. They would abuse people. They would abuse their power. They would make examples publicly of people to strike fear into their hearts so that they might fear the tax collector and just do what he says or else you know, you'll get in trouble or you'll, you'll have physical harm brought to you. And so tax collectors were spoken of very negatively in Scripture. They were viewed very negatively over all as people. If you knew someone was a tax collector, that's really all you would need to know before making your assumptions and making your judgments and having a harsh view on them. So as a kid, you're not really exposed much to tax collecting unless you're fortunate like myself and got to watch Robin Hood growing up. But this is the sheriff of Nottingham, and everyone hates him because he was the tax collector as well. And every time he'd roll through town, he would be singing his song about collecting taxes. And it's just his job, so don't hate me. But he abused his power. The people there were poor enough anyways, and he would often take everything they had just to say he was collecting taxes. And so it's easy to quickly understand how the people felt about the tax collector in the time of Jesus. People didn't like them. People didn't appreciate them. And people thought very harshly of them. We see a couple examples. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 17, Jesus says, If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, Jesus isn't saying that tax collectors are heathens, but Jesus is using the perspective of the common man back then as a teaching point. And the point isn't to talk about tax collectors and talk about heathens, but he's talking about conflict resolution and how people need to be able to work out their problems amongst themselves and the steps that need to be taken. But Jesus understood how the people felt back then about these tax collectors and about these heathens. And so he used that as a, as a stepping point, as a teaching point to his disciples. But we certainly see the attitude of people like the Pharisees toward the tax collector. We see this in Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. We'll read this entire parable later, but we'll just read verse 11. Jesus, while he's teaching, says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. So people like the Pharisees and maybe even the common people thought really highly of themselves just because they didn't hold this occupation. Certainly, there are things that we can think of where, where there are professional jobs and, and works that maybe we wouldn't want our children to grow up and, and try to obtain those, those jobs. 
in their adult life. And I suppose that back in these times, if you raised children and they grew up and did not become tax collectors, you're probably viewed as a successful parent because you didn't raise your child to, to maybe be greedy or whatever other preconceived notions the people had. But we see how negatively viewed the tax collector was, and we, we see probably oftentimes how they were treated, how they were, re, were rejected by their own people. And so we come back to this calling of Matthew, to this meal. We won't read this again, but, you know, Jesus is in the, the region of Capernaum in Galilee, in the far north part of the, the nation, the overall kingdom of Israel. And so Jesus walks by this tax office, and he sees Matthew in there. Now, Jesus already knows everything about Matthew. Jesus knew Matthew's heart. Jesus had known everything Matthew had ever done. But Jesus invites him. He says, follow me. And so we don't know everything that went on in Matthew's mind. We can't assume that he was too much different from other tax collectors. We know that he was indeed a man and had sin in his life, sin that needed to be changed. Maybe Matthew had heard a little bit about this Jesus, about some of the works and some of the miracles that he was performing, and maybe he believed in him, but we don't know completely for sure. But Matthew gets up and follows him. Matthew leaves behind his work, his money, to follow Jesus. And so they actually go and have this meal in Matthew's home. In in Luke's gospel account, when Jesus called Matthew, it says specifically they went to Levi's home, and Levi is Matthew's proper name. And so they go to Matthew's home, and they're sharing in this meal, and there's, there's these other tax collectors with them, maybe some of Matthew's co-workers, Matthew's friends. But the Pharisees see this, and they know who these people are, and they know who Jesus is. And they see Jesus with them. And they say, why, why does your teacher eat with these people? Why are they doing this? We don't know the hearts of the other apostles, if there was any bitterness at this meal, or, or if it was a hostile environment. We can assume it really wasn't because that's not who the focus is put on. But rather, the focus is put on the Pharisees because they ask the question. They complain against his disciples. Why is your teacher with these people? He's wasting his time. These are bad people. These are rotten people. They're tax collectors. They're sinners. We've known what they've done. They're shameful. But Jesus, of course, simply responds, by saying that those who are sick have need of a physician. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's really all we're left with as far as this event goes. After this, immediately, Jesus is continuing his work, and this really isn't addressed again. And so this really probably left the Pharisees with more questions in their hearts or either further arrogance in their self-righteousness but things continue on for Jesus. But there's, there's certainly a lot that we can learn from this, and I hope that we can pull some of the lessons and, and apply them to our lives. The first thing I want to do is look at what this call meant for Matthew and people like Matthew. When Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, he was talking about Matthew. Matthew was one of those sinners that needed change. It meant a life change. It meant a life of new commitment for Matthew, it meant a new purpose in life. It meant a new identity as a follower of Christ, as an apostle. People oftentimes seek to be defined by their work, by their professional occupations. 
And so that was no different for them back in this time. Jesus was known as a carpenter in the, in the beginning of his ministry. And so Matthew was simply known as another tax collector, another scumbag, another evil person. That's what people thought of him. But now, for Matthew, this meant something different. He wouldn't be known as a tax collector. Instead, he's known as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So I submit that for Matthew, this meant everything to him. He no longer had to live behind the shadow of his job title. No longer had to be known as a tax collector, but rather as an apostle. So for Matthew, this meant forgiveness. This meant mercy shown to him by Jesus. And that was everything to him because he lived the rest of his life very faithfully to Jesus. We see that in his actions. And ultimately, we see that in the fact that he wrote an entire gospel account of Jesus' life the gospel account of Matthew. We see the humility within Matthew as it's displayed, as his proper name was Levi. That was his more honorable name, but he refers to himself in Scripture as Matthew, as his lesser name. So certainly we see the impact that this had on Matthew's life. And without Jesus' invitation to follow him, we don't know where he would have ended up. We don't know if he would have continued doing the things that he was doing, practicing tax collecting, perhaps in a sinful way. So without the invitation to follow Matthew, he might have been trapped in his sin, continued to be a servant to the Romans and, be, and continue to be a servant to sin. And so think about others that you're around. Think about your coworkers and think about maybe some family members who need to hear the gospel without a, a, an invitation, without a chance to hear about Jesus, where will they be in the future? Where will they go? What did this mean for Jesus? For Jesus, this opened the door for potential for internal conflict. You had a, at least one or if not two apostles that were known as zealots. And this was a, a organized group of Jews who firmly believed in the physical overthrow of the Roman Empire. They were ready to go. They were ready to fight. And now you have this Roman employee who's getting paid by the Romans. Life isn't too bad. He's got a lot of money. He's got this home big enough to host all these people in for dinner. But really what happened, we don't read a lot throughout Scripture about this being an issue, but what we do see is that it opened the door for public scrutiny. It opened the door for the Pharisees, to have this idea that Jesus' true identity as a sinner was revealing itself. And they thought, we have him now. We've got him. So they asked that question to the disciples. And they used that throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry as a means to attack him, to attack his character. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, we read, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is justified by her children. Look, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, he spends his time with these people. He must do the same things that they do. I suppose we can give the Pharisees a little bit of slack in this situation because back in those times, especially, it was a very serious, intimate thing to have people gathered around a table in your home to share a meal. And for people, that meant that you shared lifestyles. That meant you, you shared ideologies. You shared the same way of thinking. You shared the same moral values. So when the Pharisees see Jesus with these people, 
it shouldn't be a surprise to us that they have this question. That they think, why is he with these people? Isn't He's claimed to be the Son of God, but obviously he's sharing the same opinions that these people do. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Therefore, he must be doing the same things that they're doing. But really what we find is the exact opposite is true. For Jesus, he was able to further prove his mission. For Jesus, this was just another day of work for him. As his response to their question, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to seek those who were lost. Jesus was a doctor that the spiritually sick people needed more than anything else. They needed a Savior. They needed forgiveness. And Jesus brought that. Jesus brought that opportunity. Matthew got to hear the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus. And Matthew accepted that. We don't know about the other tax collectors and sinners who were there. But maybe they went and changed their lives as well. Maybe they went and, and, and lived a different lifestyle than they used to. No, Jesus didn't spend time with these people to partake in their sins, but to save them from their sins. That was his purpose. And, and sometimes we can make the mistake, we can have the misconception that we need to put ourselves in dangerous spiritual situations in order to have a good influence on people. But Jesus shows even that's not necessary because Jesus had his apostles with him. Jesus had his followers with him in this event. And so there was really no temptation for Jesus to commit any kind of sin or to change the way that he lived. We do need to spend time with people outside the body of Christ. We need to have that influence on them. But Jesus shows us a way to do it in a wise way to have others around you that, that want you to succeed spiritually. Paul understood the notion of, of being one who was lost and being a sinner and needing Jesus more than anyone else. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he wrote, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul understood Jesus' mission. And Paul understood that he needed Jesus. He called himself the chief of sinners. That was a humble way of Paul saying, I need Jesus more than anyone else. And you might look at Paul and he did his best to live a very righteous life. He was very zealous for God in God's ways and he thought that Jesus was an enemy. But we see the opposite was true was that Jesus was not an enemy of, of God. Jesus was God, was the Son of God, and that Paul had a lot of changes to make in his life, to turn away from those things and to follow Jesus. And the best antidote there is for an attitude of self-righteousness, maybe you're not aware of is, is even there, but the perfect antidote is to simply remember where you would be without Jesus, to understand that without Jesus, you don't have anything. The only thing that separates us from the rest of the world is another man's righteousness and not our own. Our own righteousness can't fulfill, can't redeem us from the sins that we've committed and from the separation that there is from God. Only the righteousness of Christ, only the blood of another man 
And so in order to implement that in our life, we have to remember where we would be without Jesus. And, ha- and that should affect how we view other people. Because the Pharisees really didn't allow it to affect how they saw others. They simply saw people as for what they'd done, and they thought that in their lifestyles, in the way that they lived, in their works, in their deeds, that they were far superior to other people. But we saw the opposite was true. And so what does this mean for us? I think that there's quite a bit that we can take from this event, that we can take from the teachings of Jesus. The first thing that comes to mind is, is the humility over pride concept. And this concept is, is all throughout Scripture. And Jesus really uh, taught about it. It was important to Jesus. And so we talked about this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus addressed this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus taught this to those religious leaders. Maybe even some of his followers felt this way, that they were superior to other people. But those leaders believed that their works made them righteous and that their works separated them from everyone else, that it made them better in some way. And so in that line of thinking, they despised other people. They hated other people because of their mistakes, because of their wrongs. And we see, we see the prayer of the Pharisee in this, and we see the self-righteousness just inflamed within him. He can't help but blurt it out. He thanks God for, for him doing all these good things and not being like other people, not being like that despicable tax collector over there who no doubt lives an unrighteous life, but then... What's the tax collector doing? What's the tax collector's attitude? He's humble. He recognizes that he's a sinner. He recognizes that he needs God's mercy and that his own deeds aren't enough. They won't be enough. So what does Jesus say about them? Jesus says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's a common theme theme throughout Scripture as well. If you lift yourself up, You raise yourself up in self-righteousness, someday, one way or another, you'll be humbled. You'll be brought low. God will take care of it. And if you humble yourself and bring yourself low and understand and recognize who you are without Jesus, God will exalt you. God will lift you up. God will take care of it. And that's a consistent theme throughout Scripture, and Jesus taught on that. And Jesus expects us as his followers to have that sense of humility to have that recognition. No, without Jesus, I'm no better than anyone else. Without His righteousness, I'm no more righteous than anyone else. So we need to have that attitude in our daily lives. And that will affect the way that you view other people. That will affect the way that you see maybe the people you spend time with on a daily basis. Jesus also told the Pharisees, he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says that with a little bit of irony because you would think the Pharisees know an awful lot about Scripture. You think they'd know everything. They act like they've got it all figured out. Jesus says, go and learn this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That comes from the prophet Hosea. Hosea was a prophet back in the, the, the split kingdom of Israel to the north and Judah in the south. And the Israelites had far lost their way. They lost who they were supposed to be. They lost who they were supposed to live for. And instead, they were living for themselves. 
They were practicing idolatry, unjustness, injustice, unjustness. I don't think that's the word. They weren't practicing justice. They weren't practicing mercy. They were practicing selfishness and their self-will. So God is sending a message to His people. God is going to warn His people about what will happen if they continue down this path. So He calls the man Hosea to take that message to them. But what's a little different about Hosea than other prophets in the Old Testament was the fact that God told Hosea to go and get married. That's a little different in and of itself. But not just to go and get married, but to marry a woman who practiced prostitution. A woman who committed fornication and adultery on a very regular basis. God told him to go and marry a woman who practiced that. And so Hosea found a woman named Gomer. And she was a prostitute, just as God commanded him to do. And they had three children together. But throughout their time as, as a married couple, Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea time and time again as her work called her. Time and time again, the hurt, the pain that Hosea must have felt. But he kept her by his side, nonetheless. I'm sure that eventually Hosea decided there may need to be some changes. He may need to get rid of her. What Gomer was doing was, was worthy of being put to death by the law of Moses. So maybe that was one option. And maybe, maybe Hosea just wanted to write a, a certificate of divorce and, and be done with this hurt and this harm that Gomer had been causing him. But what do we see in Hosea chapter 3? Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Why? Why put myself through this? Why continue to do this when it's not working? Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. The children of Israel had far long lost their way. They loved the ways of the pagans. They loved the ways of idolatry. And they had turned their back on God time and time again. But even through that, God still loved His children more than anyone else ever could, more than we could possibly imagine. And through Hosea's display of then redeeming Gomer, was showing a picture of, of how much God loves His people. And so, in verse number 2, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. So what does that mean? It would seem like random numbers. Well, 30 shekels of silver was the legal price, full price to pay for a slave in the law of Moses. So Hosea only had 15. And the one half homers of barley wasn't too much either. But Hosea gave everything he had. Hosea gave it all away for Gomer. A woman who was unfaithful to him, who had turned her back on him time and time again. But it's because that's what God has experienced with the children of Israel. That's what God has had to go through, but yet God still loved them. And what a reflection is that of Jesus Christ. Hosea gave everything he had for Gomer, but God gave everything he had for all mankind. God gave his only son, a sacrifice for our sins, so what did Hosea tell her? 
I said to her in verse 3, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. Gomer was now redeemed. She would not have to practice her sin any longer. Hosea wanted her. And so he purchased her. He redeemed her. And God has offered that redemption to all mankind. And God has redeemed his church. God has redeemed his people with the blood of his son. And so what was some of the application for God's people? In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. As we mentioned, the children of Israel, they've lost their way, practicing idolatry, but they still offer sacrifices to God. They expect God to be pleased with that. But God was far pleased with them. They were not practicing love. They were not practicing compassion to each other. And that's what God desired. God wanted a people who, was, who were separated. He wanted a royal priesthood, a holy kingdom for himself. But they went the other direction. God desired them to have his heart within them. God desired them to see the way that he sees, to think the way that he thinks. And God's ways are, are far above our ways, but not his love. We, we, we see God's love for us. We, we see God's love in the fact that he gave Jesus for us. And so we can show that kind of love to other people. We can tell others about that love that God has shown to us. In John chapter 5, we'll read a few verses from John chapter 5. Here this is shortly after Jesus had, had healed a man on the Sabbath. To the Pharisees, that was a big no-no. You literally can't do anything on the Sabbath. But Jesus performed this great miracle. A man who hadn't walked for 40 years sat by this pool that, and thought that maybe he could be healed from that pool. But he never had the opportunity to go get in that pool because he couldn't move. Well, Jesus heals him. Jesus says, take up your bed and walk and go. The Pharisees see this and they condemn Jesus for doing this. They say, how could you do this on the Sabbath day? But Jesus explained to them he was doing good on the Sabbath. And it was no more of a work than just saying a few words. It's not like Jesus got out all these tools and, and, and did some, some crazy amazing work, strong physical work. Jesus simply said a few words. And so Jesus begins to explain his deity and his witnesses to him. He talks about John the Baptist being a witness to him. But in verse 37, he talks about an even, an even greater witness. The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. What's Jesus saying? The Pharisees couldn't see past the fact that Jesus had done something incredible for someone. Instead, they just saw, how could he do this? How could he supposedly break the law? Jesus' simple response was, you don't know God. You think you know God. You search the scriptures, and then you think you have life, but you don't. Think about, you don't know the person who sent you those words in the first place. They had great respect for Moses because Moses was a mediator between the children of Israel and God in that time. 
And, and Moses delivered the law to them, but it was God who gave Moses the law in the first place. It was God who spoke those words. It was from God's heart. But they missed the point. They didn't have God's love abiding in them. They didn't have His Word abiding in them. They were more focused on appearing righteous and looking good above other people. So that's what Jesus told them. You don't know God. You don't have God's love in you. So do you have God's love in you today? How do you know? Do other people see it? Do other people know? Because if we profess and claim to, to know God and love God, but His love doesn't dwell in us, and we don't allow that to shape our lives, to shape how we see people, then you don't have God's love in you. So that's something very important for us to reflect on, not just today, but as we go about our daily lives. Luke chapter 11 and verse 42, we read this verse last week. Luke chapter 11, verse 42 and 43. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They pass by justice and the love of God. They're more focused on themselves. They like the best seats in the synagogue. They like the greetings in the marketplaces. They like to be known as very righteous people before others. That's their focus. But Jesus warned them. He said, you, you ought to have done these things without leaving the others undone. You should still do the other things, but you need the love of God within you, and you, you need to show that to other people. God wants our worship God wants our sacrifice, but more than that, God wants your heart. God wants your heart to love others as He has, has loved His people throughout history and, and how He has shown us love today. And so I think the applicable warning for us is let's not get too comfortable where we're at. Let's not get too comfortable in thinking, you know, we've, we've got it all together. We're living good lives. We're doing good things. When there are so many people out there who, who desire to serve God. Maybe they're just a little misinformed. There are people out there who are tired of living their life in sin, but just can't get out of it. They're trapped. They're stuck. They're a slave to sin. Jesus died for them just as much as He died for us today. So let's not get too comfortable with our, our seats and in our greetings with one another, because certainly those are good things. We enjoy coming together, but there are other people who could join us as well. And so how do you view people around you? How do you view them this morning? Do you view people as, as people who want to serve God in some capacity? Now, there are a lot of people who will make it very clear they don't desire to serve God, they don't want to serve God, they don't believe in God. But as I've grown older, the more people I've been around, the more I've realized a lot of people desire to serve God. A lot of people want to live lives that are righteous before God. Maybe they just need to be more educated. Maybe they need to hear the complete truth. Where is your heart in reaching the lost? How do you view other people? Do you view people as a waste of time? Well, they won't listen to me because I know the way that they live their lives. Do we give people the slightest chance, just like Jesus gave Matthew the chance to follow him? 
Do you view yourself as greater than those around you because of their sin? Because their sin isn't the same sin that you struggle with. Remember where you were and remember that Jesus, that God has shown you mercy, that God has shown you love. We need to have the mindset of Paul within us, that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. I was a sinner that needed change. I was a sinner that needed repentance, and other people do too. And so allow God's love to change the way you see others, to change the way you view them, and that will drive you to tell them about Jesus. Because if you just see people as terrible people, as terrible sinners, then what will drive you to go to them with the gospel? Instead, we need the compassion and love that Jesus has shown us. hope that these things have been helpful to you in some way this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't have yourself covered in the blood of Jesus, God has offered that for us. You can be redeemed this morning. You can be purchased this morning, and your sins will be forgiven. You will walk a new creature with a new commitment of life and a new purpose, a greater purpose. Or if you're here this morning and, and maybe you, you feel that your attitude towards others isn't where it needs to be and you need prayers for strength, I think we could all use prayers to be strengthened in that area, certainly from time to time. I know I can. This lesson is just as much for me as it is for anyone else. But if you would like the prayers of the church, we can help you. We can pray with you. We can study with you. If there's one of either case, please come forward as we stand and sing the song selected.